beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 34, uh, we read something of Moses as the Lord told him to recut uh, the tablets of the law of God. Uh, He had broken uh, the first two tablets. And so Moses was doing this particular work. And then the Lord revealed something to Moses about himself. This is what we call the self-disclosure of God. God reveals himself in a particular way. And this is what he says in in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and to the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God revealed himself as a God who forgives. He is a God who forgives those for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. He punishes sinners in his son. The sins of sinners in his son. Particular sinners. Elect sinners. But nevertheless, sinners... Their sins, all of them, are punished in Jesus Christ. He is the one who takes responsibility for the sins of a multitude which no man can number. And God forgives. And when God forgives, God reconciles in this. And God is the reconciler. He reconciles and brings them back into the fold. So one who was once an enemy is now a friend of God as we find in reconciliation. No more enmity. No more war. Now there is sonship. Now there is a receiving. And then we find in the New Testament that as those that are the children of God who are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, we are to bear that likeness and therefore there are to be characteristics that ought to be found in us as well. And now the one particular is what we highlight here, we find in this book of Philemon, is forgiveness. Being an individual who forgives. Why? Because the individual deserves to be forgiven? No, because we have been forgiven. We are emulating our Father. And we are like our Father in that way when we are forgiving as individuals. And so we have an account of that all throughout the Scriptures. And New Testament speaks many times of that. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we are to forgive one another even as God in Christ has forgiven us. We have a charge against one another even as Christ has done for us. So we are to do towards others We are love is to cover a multitude of sins. We are to be those that strive for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for peace as the people of God. So thinking about the forgiveness, let me just make mention of two particular things that we find in the Gospels. One is the prodigal son. Where he had sinned against his father, he had sinned against his brother, sinned against the whole household. And yet he was forgiven. It says he came to his senses. This is the working of the Holy Spirit. Stirring one up to repentance. Bringing the mind back to the truth. What am I doing here? Eating these these pods which the pigs are eating. And he returns back to his father's house. And he's not requiring anything. I I know I'm not going to be welcomed back as a son. Let me just be like the hired servants. 
This is what he's looking for. He is one, he is without employment. He is without food, without provision. And he comes back to his father. And what does he find? He finds his father running to meet him. To embrace him. To bring him back into the home. And this is just incensing the elder brother. Can't believe that the old man would bring this guy in. Well, what's he doing? He's squandered all of his wealth. He's lived this way. He doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Neither do you and I. But this is a picture, isn't it? Of God forgiving us for Christ's sake. And so he's forgiven, brought back into the fold. Fatted calf is killed. Celebration. Because this, your brother, was once lost. And now he was found. Forgiveness. Notice what happened to the elder brother. He was bitter. Bitterness choked out his life. It choked out his life so much that he couldn't even enjoy the things that he had of his father's. As his father says, all that I have is yours. If you wanted a fatted calf, all you had to do was ask. I mean, everything of mine is yours. But he couldn't enjoy it because he was too bitter. That's a lot that goes on in the life of the church as well, isn't it? Unforgiveness brings that. The second example we have is from Matthew 18. And this is the parable of the unforgiving uh, servant or steward. So he owes a debt that could be paid. And yet he goes to the man and says, I beg you, have patience with me and I'll pay all that I owe. And he would not. He did just the opposite. He grabbed him by the throat. And he says, pay me all that you owe me. Or I'll have you thrown into the debtor's prison. This is the same man who had gone before the king with a debt that he could not pay. It was an astronomical debt. He could never have paid that debt. And he asked to be pardoned of that debt. And be forgiven of that debt. And the king forgave him all of that debt. And the same man then went out and choked out a man who owed him a day's wages. Unforgiveness. And so Jesus said, have this man thrown into the debtor's prison until he pays the last mite. He could never. He was always compounding, right? He could never get out of the prison. And Jesus says this, So will my heavenly Father do to you if you from the heart do not forgive your brother. Forgiveness is not an option for the believer. Now we know the paradigms that are spoken of in Scripture. That when your brother sins against you, you go to him. There must be a release there is a debt, as it were, that is owed. There must be a releasing of that. There must be a reconciliation of words. That must take place. The scriptures are clear on that. Jesus is clear on that. And also, if you've sinned against your brother and you know, you go and you confess your sin. The two of you, to resolve the issue. And then it's over with. And if not, then Jesus lays out the recipe of how to deal with that who won't repent. But what is the idea? What is the truth? What is the principle that he's teaching there? We must, beloved, 
We must be people that are forgiving continually. Our life is to exemplify a life of forgiveness. Not bitterness, not grudge, not revenge. We've all been there. All right, wipe away the silliness, the foolishness, the nonsense of thinking that you haven't, because you have. We've all been there. We've all wanted that pound of flesh. How'd that work out for us? It's no positive virtue, was it? No joy, no contentment, no peace, no love, no patience, no kindness. No gentleness. None. No fruit of the Spirit flowed out of that. Only the works of the flesh. We have got to be a people that is ready to forgive when one comes. It may not happen. But you have got to protect. You have got to be aware of the bitterness that can grow in the heart and will grow in the heart as a result of unforgiveness. And this is the unforgiving heart. I will not forgive them, no matter what they do, I won't forgive. The root of bitterness has already taken place. That individual is blind to that. It is not this either. It is not this that says, well, I would never act that way. Stop lying to yourself. You're only fooling yourself. We've all been there. This is what we need. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for being bitter. I've been bitter. I've felt the bitterness. I've felt that anger. I know exactly what it means to have the spirit of unforgiveness. I get it. What do you do with it? You confess it. You confess it with the, to the Lord. Lord, I have done this. Don't deny it. Own it. And ask for forgiveness. And ask for the work of the Lord in your heart. Now change my heart. Change my desires. Change my disposition. Change my attitude, Lord. Because it's not my mother. It's not my brother. But it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. That's how you deal with that. And you must be always ready. That individual may not come. And you may have tried, and they may not. But beloved, you may not allow your heart to become hardened in bitterness. You may not. You do not have biblical permission to let your heart become hardened. So we have to pray against it, don't we? Because left to itself, it will settle that way. And it will become hardened. And it's almost imperceptible as it goes on behind the scenes, in the innermost part of the heart, indwelling inside of us. We don't even see it growing, and yet it's growing. It's like a, a tumor that begins in the brain. And they go in and they have some kind of examination. It says it's the size of a grapefruit. How, how could that be? How could you have a tumor in your brain the size of a grapefruit and you not even feel it? They went in because they had some cognitive problems. Speech or, or maybe they're taking steps and they tripped, they fell down. And they went and had an examination and they found this massive tumor that grew imperceptibly in the brain. 
And then notice how it becomes altering all different aspects of the body. Can't see right. Your hearing is off. Your equilibrium is off. You can't think right. Your walking is off. You're starting to stumble. You know there's something wrong. There's a problem. That's what happens when sin, when bitterness, when anger, revenge, when it begins growing in the heart, starts throwing everything off. It's almost like it's imperceptible to us as it begins to grow. We have to pray against it. We have to confess it. We have to be real. I I find, again, I've said this a thousand times, I find a Christianity today that is not real. It's, it's, It's troubling how phony it is. That it doesn't confess truth. Have you been angry? Has somebody irritated you so much that you wouldn't want them just to be wiped off the face of the earth? To say, I have never done that is a lie. We need to confess that to the Lord. That's where significant healing can take place. Lord, I have thought wrong. I have done wrong. Reminds me of a movie quote. Here we go. The cook on the Cowboys with John Wayne. He's about ready to be hung. Do you have any last words? Yes. Forgive me for my anger, for my hatred, for my, uh, my, son, my Saturday drunkenness and my Sunday sloth. Forgive me for my adultery, my lust. Forgive me for the men I killed and about the men I'm about to kill. That's real. And it's sad we don't have that today. We have too much of a put on the shiny and glitter so you can look at me at my best. And underneath, I'm rotted corpse. Forgiveness is a great virtue in the life of the church. We need it. And if you don't give it, if you're not ready, if you're not willing to forgive others, then in a relational sense, you may be a Christian. Christians can be hardened in that way. Maybe the disciplining hand of God. But there are scriptures speak of two types of forgiveness. One is judicial, where God forgives all of our sins for the sake of Jesus Christ. Another is relational. We have a relationship in the body of Christ. We have been brought in. We are one body in Jesus Christ. But you know what? Our fellowship can be disrupted. Our fellowship can be disrupted because of sin. That is a relational sin. It doesn't destroy the union. It cannot destroy the union. Brothers and sisters in Christ forever. But there is no fellowship. There's no joy of salvation together. There's no unity together. There's no doing things together. And that's a result of sin. So in the same manner, our prayers can be hindered because of lack of forgiveness. In a relational sense, God doesn't forgive in that sense. And there you experience the dark night of the soul. Fellowship is disrupted. Until you make it right, you will go on and you will be lacking the joy of your salvation. I didn't say you didn't have salvation. I didn't say you lost salvation. You are lacking the joy of salvation. 
You will not feel, as it were, sense the presence of God, the joy of God, because of your lack of salvation. That's exactly what Jesus said in that parable. Neither will you be forgiven. It's relational. So Paul is dealing then with his friend, Philemon. Philemon, a man whose name means friendly, probably met the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. Philemon was a man who was from Colossae. And he was a wealthy man. He was a man of some means. How do you know that? Because he had a home. Many at that time didn't have of their own possession. He at least had one slave. Maybe he had more. But that demonstrates that he, had, he was a man of some means. He also, as we see, he had the church that was met in his home. You see, the church didn't have buildings as we have today till about the third century. Before that, there was a home meeting. Congregations, small congregations, they would meet and they would gather in members' homes that had the ability to then host the family as the church meeting in their house. And so uh, this is who Philemon is. He is a friend of the Apostle Paul. And so Paul, when he begins to address him, he doesn't come with the authority of an apostle, which he said he could, but he doesn't. He appeals to him as a friend, as an aged one. You know, this tends to speak about the character of Philemon, that he was a godly man. He was a man of character. He was a man of principle. He was a man who would do the right thing. He didn't have to have the authority coming down on him. He just had to have the appeal of the Apostle Paul who loved him. Speaks well the way the Apostle comes to Philemon to speak to him about reconciliation with his runaway slave Onesimus. You see, in this time, slaves had no rights. Onesimus was probably treated well, but he wanted to be free. And wanting to be free, many slaves would break away from their masters, and that's exactly what he did. But he was the sole property of Philemon. Philemon had the right to do with him whatever he pleased. He had the right to put him to death. He had the right to torture him. He had the right to do with him whatever he could think of. That was under the Roman law. Paul appeals to him about receiving him back. And Paul appeals to particular things about Philemon's own forgiveness. You know, beloved, that's... That's instructive to us when we're dealing with people, friends, that are caught up in the skirmish. They're unforgiven, and they're unforgiving that's going on. That those that are involved in some sense can bring this, you've been forgiven. Who are you to hold a grudge against any? God has forgiven you. Appealing in that way. It's a strong motive. It's a great motive. It's a motive. It's a loving motive. This is what Paul does. He says, Paul, beginning, right, with his name. You know, we read letters today. You get to the end. You've got to find out who it is. You know, if it's a long letter, you turn in pages to get to the back. Who is this? 
And this is if somebody doesn't address it. Sometimes you get things with no return address. You don't know who it's from. I get letters sometimes that way. No return. No signature. If you've wrote those, they go right in the trash. If you don't have enough courage to sign your name to what you wrote, I pitch those. Paul writes right from the beginning. We know who's writing this letter. And he calls himself, notice, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Do you view yourself as a prisoner of Christ? Now, you may not be in a physical prison as Paul was. This, as I said, is one of, is one of the four prison epistles that Paul writes. In Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and also Philemon, writing to this person, Philemon. But Paul is in a Roman prison as he's writing. Now let me ask you, again, do you see yourself? Do you view yourself? Do you have as your identity a prisoner of Jesus Christ? That Christ has bought you. is what Paul is saying. He wasn't. He was there. Notice how this demonstrates how Paul understood the sovereign providential hand of God. I am here by the appointment of God. If it was not God's appointment, I would not be here. He sees it in that way. He understands God's providential rule over all things. Would that the church today understood that. That there are no coincidences that happen. I heard a pastor this week said, a providential coincidence. I mean, just trying to tone the language down. God in His providence rules and orchestrates and governs all things, and He does so by secondary means. And He doesn't take away the ability or the will of the creature. We have the ability to make choices, make decisions, and God doesn't violate that ability, but even though He predestines all things that come to pass, that's beyond our ability to comprehend. Paul understands that. And he noticed he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And that's who we are if we're true believers. If you're truly redeemed, you're a prisoner of Christ. He's bought you. That's what we say in the catechism. I'm not my own. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ bought you. He purchased you. He is the one who has lived in your place. Beloved, what does God require of us? Perfection. Now the world immediately runs to, well, nobody's perfect. That's right, and we all deserve damnation. God demands perfection. I have not perfection of myself. I have no practical perfection. I've never experienced practical perfection one moment of my day. How do I stand before a holy God? You need perfection. Where do I get it? Christ. Christ is perfect. He has the perfect robes. He has fulfilled all the commandments of God in the place of his people. When I run to him, he covers. It's amazing, isn't it? I do run, but I know that I only ran because the Holy Spirit gave me the legs to run. I only believe because he has given me the ability to believe. I know I love him, but I know that he loved me first. I could not love him apart from that. I don't understand all that. But I know it to be true as the scripture declares it. 
Christ is the one who has covered me. I belong to him. He's bought me from the slave block to be his own. He has brought me out underneath the wrath of God, which is deserving. I deserve it. I own it. I deserve it. But no longer i am a prisoner of Christ. I wear his robes. Now I am not deserving of damnation. Christ has bore all of my damnation. I'm a prisoner of Christ. It is for me to live as a sacrifice of thanksgiving for him. Is that your life? Is that your desire? Is that your striving? I know we don't do it perfect. I know there is no practical perfection in the Christian life. I, I, I get it. I understand that. But beloved, do you strive at all? Do you, do you strive? Do you, do you desire to do it well? Do you think about it at all? Christ bore in body and soul the punishment of your sins? He cried out on the cross, Why have you forsaken me? Because he was being forsaken in your place. Do you think about that? Do you think about your identity in Christ? Paul is also with Timothy. And Timothy he calls a brother. Timothy saw Paul as a father figure. Timothy was one that the Apostle Paul tutored. Character, he loved him greatly. Lois and Eunice, spoken of with regards to Timothy, his grandmother and his mother. Trained him up from, uh, from the womb. Speaking, probably, as Paul says, you have known the Holy Scriptures from an infancy. Brephos, as a nursing child. Probably his mother spoke the word of God to him while he was in her womb. And so it is, the Apostle Paul speaks about Timothy as a brother. That, that's an endearing term. Adolphos is someone of likeness, of someone of unity, a brother. One who could be trusted. One who is cared about, one who is loved. And they speak this to Philemon. He's writing to Philemon. Notice what he says about Philemon, a beloved friend. How many beloved friends do you have? Do you know how important it is to have friends Friends are spoken of often in Scripture. You find that Paul had Timothy and Titus. When Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, he had Lot alongside of him. It's not good for us to be alone. Yes, we need a spouse. There is a desire, a need for that. We need friendship. We need godly friendship. We need friendship where there is iron sharpening iron. Not trying to, to dice each other up, but to correct, to encourage, to admonish, to rebuke when needed, to care for one another. We need this. We need godly friendship. This is what Paul is saying about Philemon, our beloved, our well-loved friend and a fellow laborer. Notice this friend and coordinating conjunction, bringing them two together, labored alongside of me. Sunergos is the Greek term. It means he's one who joined with him in the labor. Think about it like this. You're in a boat and you're rowing, and you're rowing with all your might, and you look in front of you, and there is Philemon, and he is rowing as well. You're in tandem. You're working together. There's a great unity with that. There's a great love. There is a great affection that that type of activity together brings people together. You ever notice when there is some type of a traumatic event, how it brings people together? People who never had known one another before. And all of a sudden, they can become friends with one another. They can become good friends through these particular things. Here it is with Philemon and the Apostle Paul. Our fellow laborer. 
It's a great thing to know that those who are prisoners of Christ are not only friends, but they're laboring with the gospel. Beloved, how are you laboring? Let's start with this. How are you laboring in your home? Husbands, how are you laboring in washing your wife with the water of the word? Wives, how are you laboring in submitting to your husband as unto the Lord? Children, how are you laboring in obeying your parents in the Lord? How are you laboring in bringing up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, mothers and fathers? Let's talk about more expansive into the church environment as a whole. How are you laboring? How are you a fellow laborer in the gospel of Jesus Christ in this congregation? How are you using your gifts, the talents, the abilities that God has given to you to build up, to stir up, to encourage, to edify this particular congregation? Are you? Can you be called a fellow laborer? Can I be called a fellow laborer? Are we laboring together? Are we rowing together? Are we sweating together? This is who Philemon was to the Apostle Paul. Beloved, laboring together brings great love and affection for one another. As you can see in Paul as addressed to Philemon, beloved, well loved. How many in the congregation would you say that of? That is my well beloved friend. They're greatly loved. I, I love them dearly. How many? Have you ever? Have you ever thought that way about other members of the congregation who are laboring with you, doing the work, evangelizing, loving, caring, sharing, giving, providing? Clearly, this was the Apostle Paul's heart. It was clearly Philemon's heart as well. And notice that he addresses also to the beloved Aphia and Archippus. Now, Aphia was Philemon's wife and Archippus was his son. So he's addressing the family. And he calls uh, Archip- or Aphia, he calls her beloved as well. Well beloved. She must have been a, a great servant in the church there in Colossae too. But he addresses also Archippus and notice fellow soldier. Fellow laborer, fellow soldier. Soldier, farmer, athlete. There's labor in athletics. There's labor in farming. You can see where the labor. But there is also labor in soldiering. But it's in a category itself. It's a soldier. It's one who's dressed. It's one who's put on the full armor of God. It's one who's engaged. It's your occupation. Your vocation. What do you do? I'm a soldier of Christ. That's what we are as the people of God. Do you see yourself as a fellow laborer and a fellow soldier of Jesus Christ? Now, if we're fellow soldiers... Who are you going to shoot in the rear end? If we're fellow soldiers, why your gun pointed at me? See, that's not, you're fighting the wrong fight. You're pointing your gun in the wrong direction. We're fellow soldiers. We, We soldier alongside one another. We're on the same team. We're on the same side. We fight for the same cause. This is what Paul is saying about Archippus. Fellow soldier. He is one who didn't retreat from the battle. Clearly, he must have been given much courage. His name means one who tames horses. (laughs) 
He is demonstrating that in just what Paul says about him being a fellow soldier. And notice that he says, to the church in your house. Okay, as I said, house churches. Didn't have the luxury, didn't have the finances, the ability, so much persecution. Many of them met in catacombs. But here at this time, house churches. You could see the family, don't you? Do you see the heart of the family? We opened up. Come. Come and worship at my house. My casa is su casa. My house is your house. This, this is the, the generosity. The love for the Lord's people. That is demonstrated here by Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus. Opening the home to other members of the body of Christ to worship the Lord. I have to ask, is, is, would this be said of us? You ever walk the graveyard? I, I wouldn't say I love to do that. Some of you think that I'm weirder than I really am. But I have walked graveyards. I like looking at headstones. I like looking at dates. and They came across yours. Would they say there's a fellow laborer, a fellow soldier? You see, I can say that about Daryl Kingswood. There's a fellow laborer. There's a fellow soldier. Would they say that of you? Would they say you're one of hospitality? You were a giving heart. You opened up. You revealed yourself in opening up. You do, don't you? There is an opening up and then there is uh, the possibility to be hurt badly. You reveal. People come into your home. And you know how we are with our tongues. We begin talking about the things in the home. You become vulnerable. Clearly Philemon... Aphia, Archippus, and probably more in Aphia with the woman. She let herself be vulnerable for the cause of Christ, for fellow laborers, fellow soldiers. Paul tells him with a benediction, grace to you. Grace is what begins the Christian life. And then he says, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is a result of the gospel. Grace reconciles us. Peace is what we have experientially with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we begin experiencing God's peace within us. This is all a result of God's grace of saving us from all of our sins. What a wonder. I mean, just these three little verses. Speaks volumes. It pierces, it convicts, because we have not labored as we ought, we have not soldiered as we ought, we have not opened up as we ought. But yet, this is what we see in the heart of those that are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they think beyond themselves, outside of themselves. It's not about us. There's a desire. There's a desire for others, to care for others, to provide for others. That's what laboring is, isn't it? It's sharing in the work. 
It's not only for you to do. And like I've said, it's not only my responsibility to go and to visit those that are in the hospital, to care for the sick. It is not only my responsibility. It is part of my responsibility. But not only me. It's yours as well. You want to say, and there is some aspect to this, well, that's your ministry. A little bit of it. This, beloved, is our ministry. This is the ministry of Hope Reformed Church. This is you using your gifts and me using the gifts that God has given me that we would be co-laborers. And that when the world comes against us, we are fellow soldiers. Soldiers stand arm in arm. Soldiers say, I've got your back. Soldiers say, you take this sleep. I'll take the next. I'll watch. That's what happens in the Christian life. That's an example for us, isn't it? Loving, caring, serving, opening up, thinking beyond ourselves, working together, protecting one another as those who are in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace. Pray that we experience that peace of God because we have experienced the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Shall we pray?